Welcome to Meet the Manufacturers podcast, brought to you by Manufacture CT and sponsored by Cone Resnick, who are dedicated to helping manufacturers and distributors to enhance their competitive position and succeed in high-pressure trade environments. Visit them online at coneresnick.com. Meet the Manufacturers is available on all of the world's biggest podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Never miss an episode again and subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts from. On every episode, we take the opportunity to learn more about a local manufacturing business. On this episode of Meet the Manufacturers, I am delighted to be speaking with Bill Mahoney. Bill is the CEO of Series, based in Trumbull, Connecticut, and also George Houston, who is the Director of Product Development and Quality. Now, Series Group has nearly three decades of experience in holographic sciences. Series designs and manufactures for some of the world's biggest authentication challenges. Bill and George, welcome to Meet the Manufacturers. Thank you. Thank you. Now, listen, it's great to have you here. I'm quite excited about what you guys do. So, Bill, let's kick it off with you. Tell me a little bit about the company and the products that you make. Series is a specialty security printer and converter located in Trumbull, Connecticut. We are a U.S. subsidiary of a French company, Series SA. As an organization, we have four key markets, identity, currency, vehicle ID, and brand protection. Although we distribute all products the U.S. factory concentrates on brand protection and vehicle ID markets and established ourselves as the center of excellence for these offerings within the organization. We've referenced that we have three decades together. Actually, Series was bought by the French in 2010. However, you are correct with the three decades. George, myself, and much of our team have been together for in excess of three decades, working for starting out in the hologram business with a company called Label Systems. We were located in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and we made holographic labels for brand protection and authentication. We had pedigree customers ranging from Nokia, Motorola, Intel, Disney, NBA, Major League Baseball, and many others. In 2010, Series came to the U.S. as they were known then as Hologram Industries to purchase a specialty printer in the security market. They wanted to expand their global footprint. They looked at, at us in 2009, but the negotiations did not go well, and they moved on to a company in Chicago by the name of SecureMark Decal that specialized in vehicle IDs. They purchased SecureMark Decal in 2009, but halfway through the year realized they didn't get what they really wanted. They got a, a very attractive company that made very good products. However, it didn't give them the entree into the brand protection market they were looking for. So they came back out east and they renegotiated with label systems and they bought us in December of 2010. And we went under the name at, for a short period of time of SecureMark Decal. We merged with the company from Chicago, eventually relocated much of the equipment from Chicago into our Bridgeport facility. However, there was a little bit more equipment than we could accommodate. So in 2012, we searched out a new facility and wound up in Trumbull, Connecticut and a 57,000 square foot factory wow. uh, in right off of Route 8. So it's centrally located, easy access to highways. It was a really good find for us. We consolidated all the equipment from Chicago and Bridgeport and 
began functioning in this facility in its entirety in September of 2012. Initially, we started with approximately 54 employees, but over time, some business came, some business left. We also achieved some efficiencies. And as of today, we're down to 35 people. Hopefully we'll grow that again with some new markets that we're looking at. Sounds fantastic. Now, get me excited. You talked about some of the big names there, Motorola, Nokia. Is the holographic industry that you're talking about, the, like the security tags that go on their boxes to show when they've been opened, like so, so you can't counterfeit and things like that? Are we talking passports, medications? What, what are their real applications for your services? The four markets that we as an organization participate in, identity, that would be passports, national IDs, things of that nature. Those are mostly controlled out of France. We do very little of that. We distribute some in the US, but that's mostly controlled out of France. Currency, if you go through Europe and Asia and some of the African nations, you'll find holographic strips in the currencies. That again comes out of France. We have capabilities, but right now they're considered the center of excellence for those products. They're built there. Vehicle ID, we don't see much of this in Connecticut anymore, but throughout the nation, a lot of states require a decal in the windshield that proves the car has been inspected and registered and different things of that nature. We produce a lot of those as well as tags that go on license plates. Brand protection, which is where we originally started as label system, that business has really shrunk in recent years with so many new technologies, especially blockchain. The need for an identifying mark on the product has really substantially reduced. So some of the bigger companies that we had over time, Nokia, Motorola, you know, neither one of those are really in business anymore. They're both shells of who they were and they're owned by other companies. Disney, you can't buy a DVD anymore. We were on DVDs and VHS tapes. Now I'm starting to show my age. Um, (laughs) Can't get those anymore. The sports market, we actually sold that piece off before Hologram Industries bought us. So that is still thriving, and I wish we were a part of it, but we're not. So we have other customers. We have customers in the uh, food service industry. We have customers in the hard materials products, automotive parts, where we do still produce, uh, some people refer to it as the sexy hologram. It's one of the nicest Mm -hmm. products we make is our holographic labels when we put a little color in them and what have you. But the market is not quite what it used to be. So our concentration now has been on some brand protection, but heavily in the vehicle. We currently control the products that go in and out of 17 states with their DOTs, where we have almost sole ownership of their business. And then we have another seven or eight states that we do some pieces of. So we're really heavily into vehicle ID out of this facility. And George can talk more about that with some new business that's up up and coming that we'll be looking at that's outside of the States. Yeah, no, that would be great. George, tell me a little bit about that. I was going to ask you, you know, product development. It's an evolving industry, this. Tell me a little bit about what your future plans are. What are you targeting? Thanks, Claire. Product development has been an interesting ride over the years here at Surrey's. We're always looking to push the envelope. What we try to do is we take our core competencies and see where we can build and where we can innovate and offer features and products and combinations to our customers that are going to give them value. You know, so Bill, as he was mentioning some different areas that we're exploring right now, right now as a global organization, we're entering into the global license plate market. So not only, you know, Bill was talking previously about making decals that might be applied to a license plate. In this case, we would be making the plate itself in a format that we don't often see in the United States, which is more of a reflective foil 
and acrylic covering format. So this is a new product line for us. We're going to be launching a big product in Africa coming up later this summer. So we're very excited about that. We have a couple of big projects that we're launching in Asia. One of them, again, for vehicle identification, identifying motorcycles in a large Asian country. So we're very excited about making these entrees into new parts of the market. One of the things that is nice about working here at Surrey's and our spot in the manufacturing chain is that we really are a part of the global market. So being a part of a global group allows us access to markets that you know a lot of companies may not be able to access. So we have a lot of different partners, a lot of very interesting pieces of business and customers around the world. You know, we used to say in the old days, back when uh, Bill and I were working on projects like Motorola and Nokia, that we were one of the companies here in Connecticut fighting the trade deficit. So when the containers came over from Asia full of goods, we were sending them back full of labels. We've always liked the idea of making good quality products here in Connecticut and then pushing them out to the global market. And we continue to look for more and more opportunities to do that. Fantastic. And all based in Trumbull, Connecticut, which I love. Uh, all based in Trumbull. Fantastic. George, before I ask Bill the same question, can you tell me a little bit about your career to date and how you ended up? You've been there many, many years, but how did your career evolve to get to this point here at, at Series? Well, I'm coming up on 27 years here. now. You get less for murder in England. You definitely get less for murder. I'm just saying. I'm old enough, so that doesn't seem like that long a time, but uh, (laughs) I I guess it actually is. And I would say that it's been anything but a straight line path to get here. It's had plenty of zigs and zags. You know, one of the things that you think about is, you know, when you work in manufacturing or any other business, you think, well, is this something that you always knew you were going to do? You know, for me, I would say, you know, when when I was very young, I always liked building things and thought it was really interesting to learn how things work. Of course, that meant taking apart everything in the house that wasn't locked down. So uh, <laughs> yep. my father might not have appreciated that. But I was always interested in how things work. But, you know, after a while, as I got older, I thought I wanted to take a different route in my life. And I actually spent my undergraduate years and some graduate school studying history, which I still love as a mm-hmm. sideline. So I pursued that for a while. And and when I um, got out of college and was looking for a way to make a living in the world and the economy was not so great at that time, I got my start in manufacturing and I found that I had some skills that I didn't know that I had and some interests that were able to blossom in the manufacturing area. So, you know, around 27 years ago, I got a job with a little print shop thinking, well, I would run a press for a while and see how that goes. And as a result of getting that job and learning that business from the ground up, so to speak. I've been able to build and develop through understanding holography and learning how to build holographic products, you know, pulling in different kinds of technologies and other stops along the way. So many that I couldn't even begin to list them. It has evolved to this point where I'm here with Surrey's and I have a chance to work on all of the exciting projects that we do here. So it's been a kind of a wild ride and I don't think I could trace it on a map. But uh, I've enjoyed every bit of it, and manufacturing was where I needed to be, and I've enjoyed ending up in this place. It sounds like it certainly delivered as well. Bill, what about yourself? Mine was very similar to George. It was a little bit uh, different, unorthodox way of arriving here. I went to school. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, whether it be engineering or accounting. I got accepted into the accounting program that I really wanted. So I, I decided I was going to become an accountant. When I graduated, I found I couldn't sit at a desk. So the engineer <laughs> in me came out and uh, manufacturing just opened itself up to uh, somebody with an engineering mind. 
So, you know, one of the things we say here at Ceres is we don't make printing presses. There's people that can do a much better job of that than we can. However, we adapt them, we modify them, and we turn them into specialty machines to be able to make special products. Or, you know, one of the things that you try for in the brand protection market is you can never make something that somebody else can't make. You can come very close, but you really can't. So what you need to do is you put what we call barriers to entry. So we make it so difficult that somebody's gonna say, you know what, I'm not gonna counterfeit that. I'm gonna go work on something else. That really grabbed me when I came to Ceres was the, the fact that we design machines and we design equipment and processes. However, you know, as I moved up the chain here, I realized how important my accounting degree was. One of the things that I was told very early on in manufacturing when I would look at numbers is I kind of had a little bit of a gift where I could block out the noise. I can look at a P&L, I can look at a general ledger, and I can block out the noise and tell you what's significant and basically determine moves we should make to either increase profitability or to change product lines, things of that nature. So right now today, I'm using both. I'm using my engineering mind and aptitude, but I'm also using my accounting. So again, a little bit like George, not quite the same. You know, one of the things I love to do is take an afternoon stroll in the factory and just look at the equipment, look how it's running, look what the guys are doing. You know, today, I probably spend a little bit more time in meetings than I'd like and a little bit more on the accounting side than I'd like, but it's a necessary thing to do. So, wow, what an incredible journey you guys have had. As I'm talking to you, you've reminded me that I had a friend who went to England recently, not me, unfortunately, and they came back and they said, look, we've got loads of currency left over. Does anybody want to buy it? And I was like, yeah, actually, yeah, that'd be handy for me to have next time I go home. And of course, since I've left England, they have introduced plastic money. There's a five, 10, 20 and a 50 pound note made of plastic. We've always had the foil through the middle and the hologram of the queen, but now it's all of that and plastic. It was the most bizarre thing I have seen and uh, obviously very normal for my friends back home, but uh, it felt like monopoly money to me, but it may be uh, interested in you know, the idea of it's going to be incredibly difficult to counterfeit. You know, this is incredibly difficult. Polymer currency is the wave of the future. It has a longer life. We have it right to the north of us in Canada. There's certain currencies that are in polymer. But that opens up, you know, when you say secure, it opened up a whole lot of challenges. For years with paper, you could find components to mix with that that could give you product that was not easily counterfeited. The polymers introduced a whole set of new challenges. You know, some of like you're talking the hologram with the queen. How do you make that adhere to a plastic? It adhered well to a paper. How do you make it adhere to a plastic? You know, things of that nature. There's a lot of work that went into that. We're proud to be part of Ceres, who is doing work on that over in France right now. For They've been invited to work with the French government and the EU on some denominations for the uh, euro. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Wow, we're going to have plastic euros as well. I shouldn't knock it. I shouldn't knock it. Your your company (laughs) makes it. It's It's wonderful. Sorry, I mean, it's fantastic to have waterproof money that can go through the washing machine. Apologies. Uh, (laughs) So back to business. Bill, tell me, you know, in your role, you got the big job, you got the CEO role. What does a regular day look like for you? You know, you mentioned Friday's strolling through the factory, so to speak. But what does an average day look like for you? And tell me about your roles and responsibilities. The average day is very sort of mundane. 
You know, one of the things that I've never been able to do, we're still a small company. So as a CEO, I still have manufacturing responsibilities. So I have not been able to pass those along quite yet. We're not large enough yet. So an average day really centers around starting out with the manufacturing requirements. And because we are international, we come in in the morning and we have demands from our Asian customers for schedule changes, product changes, different things. So what we try and do is have a morning huddle three days a week. It only lasts a half hour. And uh, we all sit and we have all the disciplines in there. We have finance in there. We have accounting. We have manufacturing. We have customer service. We have product development. We have engineering. And we go over what changes do we have to make? What do we have to be aware of? What's going on today? And then, of course, we have our logistics department in there. What do you need to get us? And what do you need to get out of here today to make our customers satisfied and happy? So they, they last about a half an hour. And then it's time to communicate with the parent company from a financial side, how we're doing for the month, how we're doing for the quarter, how we're doing for the year, what new forecasts can we work on, what new products are coming, when will we be ready with some of the products that George is designing. Um, so that takes up a, a fair amount of the day. And then, you know, you just your normal, you know, things that you don't count on that the phone just keeps ringing all day long and you work on. So. Absolutely. What's it like working for a French parent company? Are you fluent in uh, Francais? <laughs> George is, I am not, I wish I could. I just don't seem to have the head for work learning a language. I will say this, well, now that we're international, maybe I shouldn't, but you know, we used to have our jokes about different nationalities out there that weren't us. And I found out recently through ancestry.com that my grandmother on my mother's side was French. So um, my jokes have stopped. And I uh, you know in all seriousness, the uh, French have treated us very, very well. Yes, um, yes. They've been, a, they treat us as a partner it's a great experience. And there's been some changes over in France recently that we weren't sure how they were going to go. And it's actually been very beneficial to us. We don't have a sales team here in the US. We're dependent on the worldwide sales agent team and sales team that they have in France. And you know, trying to get their attention and looking at our parts has never been easy but it's getting there. And especially after they have a few successes with the products that George is working on right now for vehicle in other parts of the world, they're starting to see great successes. And let's face it, if a salesman can make money, he's going to go after more. So um, we just see them filling our factory up over the next couple of years. And it's a good thing. That's fantastic. George, what about your good self? What does an average day look like for you? Well, hard to imagine an average day. Every day is, is, <laughs> is so different. The truth of the matter is, you know, I have a, a couple of different responsibility sets here at Surrey's. I have a product development responsibilities and quality responsibilities, and we are a small team here. So during the course of the day, I weave through my responsibilities on both sides and make sure those bases are covered. And it basically boils down to a lot of communication. In the morning, an average day, I spend a lot of my time going through emails and communications because working for a global company, working for a company that's based outside of Paris, a lot of the communication comes in in the morning. And if I have collaborative meetings or any sort of interaction with my team members in France and globally, it's probably gonna be in the morning. So the mornings are usually more or less tied up with working as part of the global team. Later on in the day, I spend time on the floor, spend time um, interacting with the operators, interacting with the processes that are going on, making sure from a quality perspective, you know, one of the key responsibilities that we have in the quality department is to make sure that everybody has the information that they need to make sure that the products are run to spec and to make sure that 
we're meeting or exceeding the customer's expectations. So I worked with the operators and the management and the operations team to uh, make sure that that's all flowing smoothly. And if there's information missing or if there's a tool that they need, making sure that the right people get it when they need it. I also spend uh, part of my day interacting with our customers uh, here primarily domestically, both on the brand protection and on the vehicle side. A lot of what I do is product and project implementation. So when we start a new project, if we're working with say a new customer here in the US and we're implementing one of our brand protection programs, which usually include a track and trace element and a software element, which is available through web portal, I'll do training with our customers. I'll do demonstrations of that system, make sure that we understand exactly what their requirements are and do whatever we need to cater to the solution for that particular customer. So I have a pretty diverse day, but that's what I like. I like the fact that I'm always doing something a little bit different and able to participate in a lot of different areas and what's going on in the company. It's so varied, isn't it? And, and it sounds to it me is. like communication is so, so vital. I mean, it's, it's important in every company, but particularly being, you know, multinational and having to deal with time differences. I have the same problem with my family. That's, <laughs> That's it. absolutely <laughs> true. That's something that I think we, we need to point out, you know, and I don't want to scare anybody that's getting into manufacturing thinking you're called 24 hours a day. But George and I don't normally work a typical day. We don't start at eight and quit at five. You know, we have a fair amount of Asian business. So when we're dealing strictly with Asia, it's a 13 hour difference right now with Tokyo and, you know, could be 12 to 13 with Beijing. And we will have a call at six o'clock at night, which is 6 a.m. their morning, or we'll have at eight o'clock at night, 8 a.m. their morning, or vice versa. We make ourselves available because communication, we're dealing with purchasing agents that are being asked from a factory, have you been able to move this product up? Have you been able to do this? Have you been able to do that? And I always find that if we can give them answers same day, it makes the relationship so much better because they realize that you have respect for their business and you're willing to take the time to talk to them during their hours. But the hardest part we've experienced this recently is trying to tie Europe and Japan and the U.S. <laughs> um, you worked that, that out normally yet? <laughs> that means I lose because normally the French, it's three or four people and the Japanese, it's normally four or five people. And it's normally just me or George on this side. So we're normally the three o'clock in the morning or the 2.30 a.m. call. But they don't happen that often. But when they do, it means a lot to your customer that yes. you're there when they need you. Yeah, absolutely. Dependable and reliable and, and you know, adapting, I guess, to their needs, which is what it's all about. Exactly. Everybody's got a little bit of nationalistic in them. So they, you know, sometimes they, they don't necessarily resent, but they don't like having to buy parts from the U.S. They want to know, why can't we buy these internal to China or internal to Japan? If you can make their life easier by being there like suppliers in their own country are, you know, on their time zone and what have you, it means a lot. Just to add to that, you know, to all those manufacturers out there, if you're not in the global market, don't be scared of the global market because, you know, people, when it comes right down to it, people appreciate it when you make relationships with them and communicate with them. You make sure that that flows well and you give them good planning and you give them a good product. There's a lot of great people out there in the global market to work with, you know, especially for Connecticut manufacturers, you know, get out there and access those markets because they're good markets to play in. And definitely set your alarm for 3 a.m. Sounds very <laughs> yes. to me. 
Well, fortunately, <laughs> George, George and I are getting older, and you know that time in the morning we're normally up for bathroom running. Yeah, might be up <laughs> So stop by the computer and hit, hit you know, hit send receive. You know. <laughs> oh man! So tell me a little bit about the equipment or machinery that you use. Now, Bill, you mentioned that you know there are companies that make machinery considerably better than perhaps you would, but how you modify them and adapt them to your personal needs. Tell me a little bit about equipment or machinery that you have on site there in Trumbull. I could, but I'm going to hand this off to George. He's much more versed at it. Come on, George. All right, I'll give it a try. Basically, our core technology is flexographic printing. That's where the company started, and that is a lot of what we do. It's very much adapted to our particular market and the products that we want to make, but we have a press room with seven flexographic printing presses in it, ranging in width from six and a half inches to 18 and a half inches. And it's a little bit getting into print speak, but for the people who understand print out there, they'll understand what I mean. Our most capable press can give us re-registered printing, eight colors, six on the front, two on the back with lamination, which is pretty nice. So that's the Cadillac of the shop. We have a lot of capability in that area. As you were talking to Bill, we don't really build machines per se, but what we do is we innovate and we adapt machines. So when we see an application where someone's saying, well, you can't really, there is no piece of equipment that can do this particular product. Our answer is why not? So we're not quite technical enough to understand why we can't do something. So we're willing to go out there and innovate and try. We have a a fully operational machine shop here on site. We build our own modules to go on our printing presses and we will build re-registration modules, lamination modules, whatever we need for a particular job or application. So we're not afraid to go out there, improve our equipment, improve our processes and make things work. You know, we have some technologies that we've pulled in over the course of the years. A lot of it was because we were involved in holography, which is a little bit different than printing. So that instead of having a process that all happens on one press at one time, it sort of exploded and needs to go to different machines. So we got involved in things like um, adhesive coating, which most, printers of our size don't do. Re-registered die cutting and printing, where we would take material that's created someplace else and put it on a new machine, find a target on that material, and cut very precisely the labels on that material to a very tight tolerance. Because of the technologies we pulled in, we're not just a printer, we're actually a full-fledged converter, meaning we buy raw materials and we make some of our substrates ourselves in order to create our products, which has given us plenty of scope to add security elements, to add technology, to add value to the customer. So we have a fully equipped shop. We have a lot of capability here. We put the presses to work. We have a very experienced crew working on them and some very fine engineers who help us to modify those machines and keep them pushing into the next generation of technology. Fantastic. Can you tell me a little bit about the management structure, I guess, locally based in Trumbull and a little about your employee culture? Have your employees been with the company as long as you guys? Tell me a little bit about that. Not all of them, but we have retention. We have very good retention. I think right now the youngest employee is with us, has been with us approximately three years. And then from there you jump up to eights, tens, twelves, fourteens. There's quite a few thirties. Last year we had three people retire on us. I guess it was a little bit COVID got a little too much and they were at mm-hmm. a particular age and they decided to leave us. But normally you come in here and you come to work, you're going to stay. We've had people that have left us and have come back because of the culture. We're very team orientated. We like to collaborate on problems and issues. We listen to our employees. You know, who knows better how to run a press than a pressman? 
Now, fortunately, I have George that could tell me, no, 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 that's not right. They're doing it wrong, <laughs> which is really nice to have. But most of the times I learn a lot from our employees. They, they're willing to teach me. We're very open. I don't share necessarily all the financials with people, but I give them an idea of what direction we're headed in and what's going on and what they can look forward to. I don't want anybody to be surprised by anything that goes on here. We've kept this place open a long time. We expect to keep it open a, a long time from now. My predecessor, you know, whoever comes in behind me uh, will probably be here many, many years. I think an open relationship. We have some teams here that do some things in and outside of work, you know, things like uh, weight challenges where uh, they may do events together outside the facility. We have a garden that we cultivate in the back of the building that it's probably up to a size of about maybe 150 by 100 right now, oh. where we grow tomatoes and different types of vegetables that we donate to local food kitchens. Oh, so um, it's a nice group of people, but that's me talking from the top. George, maybe you have a different opinion. <laughs> He's actually going to resign live on this podcast and say, Bill, see you later. Claire, don't say that out loud. No, not at all. I'm not that crazy. To Bill's point, you know, the tone is set by the leader and the tone that Bill sets is collaborative. And, you know, we have really great communication amongst our team. You know, we have not too many, but we have enough meetings where we go over exactly what's going on with the company and where we are and what our goals are and what we need to do. And the stress is always on making sure that everybody understands how they contribute to the effort as a whole. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. One of my responsibilities here as, as the director of quality is to, you know, take a clear-eyed look at how we're doing against our performance metrics. And, you know, we decided many years ago to, as they say, take the bitter pill you know, a lot of companies out there, they'll produce presentations and graphs that make everything look like it's going great, when in fact, there are things that you need to address. And what we decided to do is that he said, well, you know, we want to know what's really going on. We want to know where we can target our efforts, where we can maximize the value of the hard work that we're putting in as a team so that we can improve the organization and how we're performing. And that's been the philosophy for a long time. And that really makes it a good place to work. A long time ago, I realized that within our company, it was okay to deliver the bad news as long as you could also deliver some options about what we're gonna do next. So that's the mindset here. You know, when we have a problem, it's not like, oh no, we have a problem. It's like, okay, we have a problem. So what are the solutions that we can outline for this problem and pick the one that's gonna help us the best to get to the next level. So that tone is all set by Bill on down through the whole team. And I think we're very lucky to have that kind of structure here at Surrey's. It sounds very open, a real kind of open environment for people to be informed and know exactly what's going on, depending on what they need to know, I guess. Which it can be painfully honest at times. Uh, <laughs> always, always, especially because he's an accountant at heart. Well, <laughs> the pandemic really messed with us quite a bit on some of the things we do. But what we tried to do is, you know, I want my employees to know that I appreciate them that I wouldn't be successful without them. So one of the things that we did start doing many, many years ago is once a month we have a birthday cake. Well, now it's up to three cakes and two tubs of ice cream. And after the two o'clock break on a Thursday afternoon towards the end of the month, we'll keep everybody in the cafeteria with them saying happy birthday to whoever it is. And then I'll take 10 minutes up on, uh, you know, before they can bite into their cake and tell them what's going on in the state of the business. George will bring up any quality issues. And then we open it to the floor and they're allowed to ask questions. And we answer them as honestly as we possibly can. And that goes a long way with your employees. 
the cake and ice cream that normally tires them out a little bit. They're not as the questions aren't as, <laughs> uh, as as biting as they could be, but they ask a lot of really good questions, and we try we try and keep them informed because they've got decisions to make, and we understand that. You know, they steer us in the right direction. That's awesome. Meet the manufacturers. Brought to you by Manufacture CT. If you would like to find out more about Manufacture CT or you would like to join the organisation, visit the website manufacturect.org. This podcast is sponsored by Cone Resnick. Advisory. Assurance. Tax. Visit their website coneresnick.com. So thinking about your employees, what skills or educational training do you look for for possible new recruits? So when they apply for a role at the company, their resume hits your desk, it's a question for both of you, really. What are the skills and attributes that you're looking for in new recruits? I think it's dependent on the job that we're looking to fill. We're looking for somebody that is a, a creative thinker, somebody that is willing to work hard. We want to know what their on-time record was at their last position, their last job. How many days did they take off per year? Those things are important to me because you know I want to know that I can count on the person. Anything beyond that, we can teach. You know, as we said earlier, a lot of our equipment is not standard, so there's going to be a fair amount of training. So we need to know that they're open, that they have a mechanical aptitude would be great. A mathematical aptitude is helpful, but a lot of these things can be taught. The way we normally do for a management role in this position, obviously, if I'm going to look for a controller, I'm going to look for somebody with accounting experience. If I'm going to look for an engineer, I'm going to look for somebody with an engineering degree and so forth and so on. However, what I'll normally do is they'll start off with an HR interview, then it'll move to me. And if they meet the need that I think we have, I will invite them in for a team interview where the rest of the team will have an opportunity to talk with them, ask questions and make a decision on them. Because the worst thing I can do as a manager is say, this is my guy, I'm hiring him. I don't care that he doesn't fit in with the rest of you. You'll figure out how to work with him. I want my team to say, we want this guy. Or I don't want this guy, and this is why. Maybe it's something I missed. So, George, you have anything to add? Yeah, you know, I, I would echo a lot of that. You know, I think it, it again, it, as Bill said, it depends on the position. You know, when you're looking at a management position, it's nice to have relevant management experience in manufacturing. To a certain degree, manufacturing is manufacturing, so a lot of that experience is applicable in any manufacturing environment. And when you have a person who has some of that experience, then it's good to talk to them and understand what their philosophy is and how they look at manufacturing and how they look at managing particular situations. And always, you know, it's nice to bring new skill sets to the company. So uh, people who come with certain software skill sets or different programs that they're familiar with that can enrich our environment. I mean, that's always, you know, something that we like to do as well as, you know, training the staff that we have, of course. And then when you look at um, entry level positions in the, for the manufacturing floor itself, you know, for me, some basic technical knowledge is nice. And sometimes that knowledge can be something as simple as how to measure and basic familiarity with working with simple tools, because, you know, as sophisticated as printing presses have become these days, they're still machines. And, you know, you still need to know some basics about how to use hand tools and, and do basic operations. And then what I look for is an active mind, someone who shows curiosity, someone who shows interest. You know, when you talk about knowledge and experience, you have to get that someplace. And knowledge and experience is important, but it's at least as important 
to have someone who wants to learn. If you have someone who wants to learn, they can gain the knowledge and experience. I mean, we have plenty of knowledge and experience on our staff right now. We have a lot of people who've been here for a long time who've been a part of the business for a long time who have things that they can share, even maybe even reaching the mentoring age of their careers. We have a lot to share for people who are eager, eager to learn and eager to start an interesting and exciting career in manufacturing. If you're willing to learn, you could be a good fit in our team. That sounds good to me. Uh, can you tell me, I mean, Bill, you mentioned earlier, you you, you touched on the pandemic and the, and the impact that had on the business. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Was it a supply chain thing? Was it, you know, a resurgence in Buy American? I mean, what was your observation and how did you navigate the company through coronavirus? Well, coronavirus, it was disruptive, to say the least. Little things like, you know, as a factory, you know, we've got chemicals in here. You don't want people eating out on the floor, drinking out on the floor. You know, all of that takes place in a cafeteria. Well, suddenly I had to shut my cafeteria down because I didn't want people in that close proximity. So we had to come up with alternative ways for them to have their lunch in the factory. We had to come up with a work from home strategy for a lot of our office staff. These things were not easy. And it took us a couple of months to figure it all out and get it right. That was challenging. Then there's the customer side of it. Our customers, you know, some days I wish I was in the public sector because I constantly get these notices that we're working from home, but not today. You know, we deal with a lot of government agencies and getting in touch with our customers was very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, it was it was very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Trying to schedule a meeting when they're all at home and minding their kids. You know, I understand a lot of these folks have kids and there, there wasn't really a lot of provisions for children during this when schools were closed. You know, so it became difficult. Fortunately for us, we have a pretty much older demographic in our factory and there weren't a lot of parents. There were a lot of grandparents though. So that still had an impact. Material supply, it was, you know, trucking and the supply chain almost shut down completely. And it's still resonating. We buy a lot of paper, we buy a lot of film, we buy chemicals or adhesives and inks. You know, I'll just give you an example. Ink used to be a three day lead time. Ink is now six to nine months. Paper used to be a six week lead time. It's now 13 to 16 months. Wow. Um, It's just, it's, you can't, you can't anticipate. And so it's really affected the business in a lot of ways. We normally are a bid centric business. So a lot of the government, you don't get long-term contracts. You get year by year, you bid on the business, you're low, low provider, you get the business, simple as that. Well, now we have to watch and we said, we can't bid on that. They're looking for delivery in X amount of days. We know in, in, in our hearts, we can't get material anywhere near there. So why would we want to take the piece of business and disappoint? So what we're finding though, is some of our customers are calling us and saying, listen, why didn't you bid? And we tell them and they say, well, nobody else bid either. If you're interested in the business, give us your best deal. <laughs> and, um, and we've been getting some business that way. So the pandemic, it just, it, There's no one thing that I can point to and say the pandemic caused this. It's just been something that has changed business conditions into something we haven't seen before. and We just have to navigate it. Fortunately, when it first hit, some of the products we buy are international. We placed large orders to the dismay of my controller because she had to figure out how to pay for it 60 or 90 days later. But we loaded up on a lot of inventory and that helped us for the first 16, 18 months. But then we ran out and now we're just like everybody else. We're just struggling to get anything. It's happening the world over. It is. I mean, other than coronavirus, are there any new projects or challenges or opportunities that you are you're tackling at the moment, I guess? Sure. George can talk a little bit about the, the vehicle ID that's happening for us down in Africa and in Asia. Two very nice projects that are relatively new to us and a new piece of business, new way of doing business. 
Yeah, that'll be a nice challenge for us uh, this summer, Claire. I mean, we have uh, a lot still to work out and we have our work cut out for us. So we'll be bringing some new processes online. Uh, we're very excited about that. So we're looking forward to a busy summer. On the longer term, we're also looking at some collaboration with other parts of our parent company to maybe bring some new technologies and new types of products into our factory, uh, maybe towards the end of 2022 and moving into 2023 and beyond. So we're part of collaborative effort to work on that. We have a, a company-wide project going on right now to spark innovation. So we have a lot of collaboration among our team members getting together and brainstorming and uh, coming up with new features and new processes that can make us an even better company moving forward. You know, for us, you know, the challenge is always to keep getting better because the market that we are in is constantly changing and we're competing against a lot of different solutions and a lot of different kinds of technologies and we have to differentiate ourselves. Globally, Sirius has always dedicated 10% of its profits per year to R&D. So reinvesting in the science and the innovation that it takes to keep our products the best. So we continue to meet that challenge all the time. And you know that's always in front of us. A couple of things that we didn't touch on that I just want to bring up is one of the things that is required of 99% of our products is some type of mark, whether it be serialization, a code, or something. And we are darn close to experts of keeping track of that. We started out with our battery labels to Motorola, where everyone was serialized. With our NBA products, everyone was serialized. And initially, the serialization, people look at it and they say, okay, that's for track and trace, and that's for authentication purposes. But I just want to share a little bit the way that all started. It started with the NBA, and it started as a revenue protection for the NBA. The NBA was granting licenses for people to use their images, their likenesses, their product, their name. And when they sell the ability for somebody to use their logo, they need to be reimbursed for that. Well, they would tell somebody, okay, you can make 5,000 of these. How did they know the people only made 5,000? How do you know they didn't make 20,000? And they only paid royalty on five. So we started out with serialization. And what we would do is we would have a, a hologram that was non-reproducible in theory with a serial number on it. And you got 5,000 of them. Unless you return any pieces of those, you got to pay for 5,000 in royalty. And we would help track that royalty. And that's how we got started. And we became very, very good at it to the point where we were putting serial numbers on Nokia labels, and within three feet of printing the number, we would cover it up with a scratch-off material. And so we were really flying yeah, blind, yeah. and we learned how to keep track of that. And that's just continued. And that's what gives us a leg up on a lot of our competition when we come to codes and serializations. Our holograms today, our holograms today, there's always a serial number or a code of some sort that helps you track it. However, that's only a piece of it. The real authentication comes with a, a cell phone and a camera. Your camera on your cell phone will actually read information within the hologram that'll prove its own authenticity. Once it secures the authenticity of the label, then it'll go out to the database that we maintain and determine where that label is, where it should be, what it should be on, and that kind of information. So data management wow. is very, very big for us. And today, you know, we, we capture a lot of data and we have to be really, really careful with all the privacy rules and what have you. Uh, GDPR turned us on its ear for a while. Yep. And we figured it all out. We keep almost no personal information um, as the best way to avoid that. If you don't have the information, you don't have to worry about how you secure it. 
But um, that's something that differentiates us from a lot of manufacturers is the fact that we have the ability to do that and we do it well. That's amazing. I remember the scratch off labels. I've, I've had quite a few products with the uh, the holograms with the uh, the silver over the top, like a scratch off. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely fascinating the work that you're involved with. It really is. I just thinking of all of the items I've ever touched, bought or used that I've had a hologram on now. It's incredible. And so high tech being connected, if you like, via telephones. Being able to use a telephone to check authenticity is incredible. Very likely, clear that some of those holograms were ours. I was just thinking, because I'm an English kid, I used to collect real football cards, stickers, as in the round football. And uh, <laughs> they always had shiny ones. They always had shiny, uh, very desirable stickers. And also the, the packets themselves were mm-hmm. always protected because it was owned by the Premier League. And obviously, ka and, and, as a as a, uh, a football fan, or as we would say, soccer fan, um, <laughs> you would appreciate that years ago we had the opportunity to authenticate products for the World Cup. Yes, uh, that's where I've seen it. Yes, the FIFA World Cup. It had a gold logo us. on. No way. It yes, was us. I certainly do remember that. I very much do. In fact, I think I've got an old binder at home in an attic in England that is World Cup 1990 (laughs) in Italy. And I've got all of the stickers. I was quite neurotic about collecting them anyway. Very nice. We go off topic. Let's get back on topic. I want to know a little bit about you guys. So starting with you first, Bill, if I may, on a personal level, what three people or figures in history have had the most impact on your life or career? Oh, mine mine are really simple. You know, I had a math teacher back in high school, Brother Daniel, who taught me the love of numbers and math. I think that's where I get the ability to knock out the noise, is tricks that he taught me. In college, I had an accounting professor, same thing. He really helped me hone those skills. And then I would say in business, one of my first bosses that I had after I became a plant manager, he was the executive vice president running a company. They had bought a new facility, the operating assets of a defunct company, He knew me from another relationship, and he asked me if I would come to work for him as the plant manager and bring the plant back up and running. And I agreed to do that. And I went to the plant, and I started the plant up, and we had probably around 40 employees. And they relocated the sales office into my facility. It it showed well to customers. It was a pretty new building. The VP of sales came to me one day and asked me if I would whitewash all of the curbs in the front parking lot and then put people's names on them. He arranged the names by order of what he thought was importance. And uh, I had a few guys go out there and they did it all up and it came out beautiful. And the executive vice president came down about a week later and he saw it and he kind of shook his head and he came inside and he asked if he could speak to me. And I said, sure, Carl, there's always room for you. Come sit down. So he said, what did you do? And I said, well, Mr. You know, Mr. Henderson had asked me to do that. I had a free guy, so I had him take care of it. He goes, listen, what makes Mr. Henderson any more important than Joe the Porter? And he just waited for an answer. I didn't give him one. I thought it was a rhetorical question. And he said, nothing. He said, you go out there this afternoon and I want all of those whited out. And the first person that gets here in the morning gets the closest spot and so forth and so on. And you know, it triggered something in my mind and I've held that with me my entire career. Every person in my factory is as important as the person next to them. They do different jobs, but they're just as important for us to hit our bottom line. Absolutely, what a great story. What about yourself, George? Three people or figures in history or a history buff have had the most impact on your life or career? Now you've really opened things up. (laughs) (laughs) George is a history buff, so this may go deep. 
There's the, there's there's too many people in just my little lifetime, let alone all of human history. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll set history aside for now. No, but in all seriousness, you know, when you look back on you know 50 plus years of life, there's so many people that you meet who have an influence on you. It's hard to pick three. But if I had to make a comment about that, I would say, you know, first for me would be a fifth grade teacher who really taught me how to believe in myself and that I shouldn't limit my dreams. Dream as big as you can, kid. That was very important to me. As far as my career is concerned, I'd, you know, I definitely have to give a shout out to the first person that I worked for in the printing industry, um, the little print shop when I first started, who gave me my introduction to the business taught me the basic skills that I would need and also turned me on to the creativity that you can have in manufacturing. Cause I never thought of manufacturing as a job necessarily that had scope for creativity, but that's really not the case. And yeah. you know, maybe that's a myth that a lot of people have out there that when you work in manufacturing, you can't be creative, but if you're really going to be a value to yourself and to your company, you need that creativity to help you solve problems. So thank you to him for helping to unlock that. And then, you know, the last thing that I would say is just in the aggregate, my colleagues, and I mean that in the broadest sense, you know, we work in a larger industry, the label industry, that's actually quite small. You know, it's possible to know a lot of people and you meet a lot of people in other companies and suppliers over the years and you establish relationships with those people and you have an opportunity to learn from them, to learn from their experience, to collaborate and sort of add to your menu of items that you can use to meet the challenges that you have. And, you know, I really appreciate the relationships that I made over the years with, with my colleagues in the label industry. Some of them retired now, you know, some of them still working, some of them I've lost touch with, but all of them have really helped me to get to this point in my career and to be able to do the job that I can do for Surrey's. So what do you guys like to do to unwind and relax when you're not getting up at 3 a.m. to speak to business partners in Asia? What do you like to do? I, you sound like a sports buff, Bill. Tell me, what's your passion outside of work? I run and I bike, but my real passion is time with my grandchildren. Oh, nice. And um, I have I have uh, a couple that are in Connecticut, and that's nice. But I have a, a crew of five that are down in Virginia, and I just wish I could get down there more often. But yeah. uh, love spending time with them. Awesome. It's so refreshing to hear perception of life through their eyes. You're not wrong. I've got a one-year-old who likes to tell me about the world on a daily basis. There you uh, go. <laughs> George, what about yourself? Well, you know, uh, I love the outdoors. In off time, uh, my wife and I, we spend as much time as we can outdoors, whether that be hiking or walking, spending time with our dog, uh, between dogs at the moment. But that's always been a, a great pleasure for us. I love to read, love to read very widely. So I get to tap back into that love of history that I have, and, <laughs> but also other things, you know, I, I like to read in whatever topic happens to interest me at the time, just to try to understand what's going on at the world and keep up with the new developments, you know, globally. And, and I, I would lastly say, you know, my, my wife is an artist. We both enjoy art. So we really like to get out there and go to museums, go to galleries, see what's happening and experience the culture a little bit. Wow. Um, that's what we like. Oh, you're a curious mind and very creative. I, That's fantastic. I am, I, yeah. I hope. <laughs> very much so, very much so. So what are some of your biggest successes or the thing that you're most proud of? It can be professionally or within your career. Kicking it off with you, Bill. I would say the relocation is factory in 2012. It would probably go down as one of my biggest successes from a professional standpoint. When we bought the facility, the French were kind enough to fund it, bought the facility for us outright, and we had a budget to move up here. Halfway through our move or our 
planning for the move, the French had the opportunity to buy the building next door to their factory, which a deal like that only comes up once in a lifetime. It would allow them to bridge the gap and put one big facility in rather than pack everything up and move to a bigger facility sometime in the future. So they basically took our budget away for the move and said, guys, try and figure it out. And we had to hire an electrician. We had to hire a moving company. We had to hire, you know, different disciplines as well as our own staff, train our own staff on how to jack up a machine, how to put it on rollers, how to put it on a truck, take it off the truck without damaging it. And then placing everything, figuring out what should go where, the layout of the facility and what have you. We had, you know, I know there's professional architects out there and people that engineers that could have helped us with all of that, but we just didn't have the funds for it. We had a choice. We could have postponed the move, which wasn't really much of a choice. George could probably elaborate on the building we were in. was probably <laughs> a week from falling down, so we needed to get out of there. So, um, But we figured it out, and we put it together, and we came in well under budget, and we did what needed to be done. You know, our staff really rose to the occasion. We had people that, uh, you know, a, a printer, who would have thought a printer would learn how to, you know, sandblast the machine, repaint it, clean it. I mean, just the things that that our staff was able to accomplish. It just, it's, it's astounding. You know, I, I think that's one of the best conclusions to a project I've ever started. That's amazing. And I really can identify with that. I once moved a radio station lock stock and I had to do it in 24 hours uh, mm -hmm. to be able to get it back on air. And uh, I remember trying to cajole a team, the staff, obviously, and I had an engineer working for me and um, I had to feed them so much pizza and so <laughs> much beer to keep them working through the night. But um, we did it in 24 hours, door to door, fully set up, studios ready to go. And uh, it was a real project management achievement for me, that's for sure. <laughs> what about yourself, George? Well, you know, it's a great segue because uh, there's a project management aspect of what I do here. And uh, for me, it comes down to the projects. And I can think back to, you know, over the years, four or five big projects where we have confronted a task to integrate a new technology or a new product line or totally new market into what we were doing. And we've successfully met those challenges and completed those projects. You know, that's always a great feeling when you start out a project, there's always so much that you don't know. Uh, you don't know how much you don't know, which is a problem. It's good to get to the point where you have some idea of how much you don't know. Um, <laughs> but piece by piece, you put that together and you try and find ways to meet all of the challenges that come up and then the challenges that come up after that. And then when you can you look back on a successful project and the people that were, that were with you that worked side by side with you to make that happen, that's always such a great feeling. That for me, that's the high point. Hope to have lots more high points of that as I reach the next phase of my career. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In in a project management setting, some of the rewards, that feel-good stuff that you get for surviving is second to none. Uh, I had a three-foot brick wall that I had to get my wires through, uh, which uh, posed a few problems for me and the engineers, but we did it. Quite Any brick wall could be taken down. <laughs> Not in a protected building that was a, an old cinema in England, which is quite historical, George. You'd have loved it if I turned it into a radio station. <laughs> it, it sounds great, actually. <laughs> it was very cool. It was a cool place. Uh, what is one common myth about your profession or in the field of manufacturing, if you like, that you would like to debunk? I don't know how you feel, Bill, but I come back to this idea that you can't be creative and be in manufacturing. Totally yeah. wrong. Totally. That and a lot, and a lot of people uh, automatically think when you think manufacturing, dirty, dark, dingy, hard work, sweating all over the place, um, and that's not it anymore. Manufacturing is a lot more of using your mind and your skills. So very much so, and that's something that comes up so often on these podcasts. You know, is that manufacturing has evolved somewhat since the Victorian times, 
and oh, yeah. uh, it is cutting edge technology and some really sharp minds uh, pushing things forward and, and developing and growing the industry, particularly here in Connecticut. So uh, a good one. Any predictions then about the future of manufacturing, I guess, in your view, and about doing business here in the state of Connecticut? I think business will continue to thrive and grow. Um, I think the, you know, the pandemic was, uh, there's a lot of awful things that came out of the pandemic, but I think some good things came out too. You know, uh, reshoring, I think it's, a, it's an effort that started a few years back and stalled. I think it's happening more now because people realize that we can't be as dependent on China as we have been and um, expect things to flow if something, if there's a bump in the road. So, but in the end, it's all going to come down to cost. So we all have to be cautious. We can't say, okay, right now people are forced to buy from us because we can make it locally and we can transport it where you can't get things from other parts of the world right now. But that will ease up eventually. And when it does, I'm really, really hopeful that the manufacturing base in Connecticut can continue to thrive in a world market with cost-saving measures and quality. Those are the things. If you can do it for the right price with quality, I think we can be very successful in many years into the future. George, um, do you have anything to add? I was just going to say one more thing, and that's about doing business in Connecticut. Hmm. The state of Connecticut for us has always been an easy place to do business. I know a lot of people complain about the high taxation and some of the environmental concerns and what have you. Personally, they've always treated us well. We do try and do things right. So I think that helps. But, uh, you know, I mentioned before, I have grandchildren. I want them to be able to, uh, you know, eat plants out of the ground and drink the water. You know, if there's a, an environmental concern or something that the state wants us to address, we will. We try to find it before they do. But if anything comes up, but, you know, I think doing business in the state of Connecticut has gone very well for us. And I hope to continue to do it for many more years. Fabulous. George, what about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think that the future of manufacturing is bright, including manufacturing here in Connecticut. I am encouraged by the fact that there are a lot of very smart, energetic people out there finding ways to make uh, manufacturing more efficient, cleaner, more environmentally friendly. For anybody out there who stays away from manufacturing because they think maybe it doesn't square with their goals for the environment, there's a way to get there. And you know, people are working on making manufacturing a, a good partner for society, both here in, in Connecticut and in the rest of the country. And I think uh, Connecticut for me has been supportive of manufacturing, continues to be supportive of manufacturing, as Bill was saying. Um, it's been a good environment for us. You know, we found it at certain times when we needed help to do certain things, whether it's training or equipment to be able to um, add jobs, add people, you know, we've worked with the state of Connecticut and, and we found eager partners with the state and we appreciate that. So I think we're heading in the right direction if we you know, take care of our workforce and encourage young people to take a look at manufacturing, to stay here in Connecticut and, and to work for Connecticut companies. I think the future can be very bright. So what do you imagine the next phases of your career are going to look like? Is there any particular areas of growth? Are there opportunities that you're preparing for at the moment for the future? What's in the future for you, Bill? I think, you know, from a manufacturing standpoint, I think the digital age, I think we're going to see ourselves have more products centered around digital, both offering to our customers and recording within ourselves. Databases or any data is something that companies can manage 
and that can uh, mean a lot to our customers. And I'll give you an example of that. We sell authentication products to a couple of companies that uh, monitor the movement of those goods, and it helps them determine where their products are being sold in the world, where a concentrated effort is or should be for their marketing departments, learning more and more, the more data we can gather. And I think our products right now lend themselves to that, but I think they can do a better job of it. So I see us enhancing that in the future. That's an exciting development. George, what about yourself? I agree with Bill's point. I think that that is uh, the way the the business is moving for us, that there's more and more of a partnership between the sort of a manufacturing equipment on the floor and the product and the digital component, whether that's you know, programs and databases on a server or in the cloud or access through a smartphone. You know, the key thing is providing value to, to the customer. Right now, you know, people are seeing that avenue for value through information about their products, about customer traffic, about where product is moving, a lot of the things that Bill was describing. So, you know, for us, you know, we continue to adapt and to bring new technologies into our platform, new programs. It's a tremendous opportunity, you know, to keep learning. So it's nice at a somewhat later stage in your career to have an opportunity to keep learning new things and keep having exposure to the latest developments in many areas. So I see that continuing. I see no stop to that. And and again, and maybe it's partly because of the market that we play in, the drive is always to push forward. So we're always going to be at the front edge of that push towards new technologies and techniques and products. Sounds amazing. Now, guys, it's been an absolute privilege speaking to you guys today. Uh, If people want to carry on the conversation, find out more about the business, what you can do, how can they reach out to you? Is there a website, social media, LinkedIn? This is basically your plug bill. Uh, (laughs) Uh, LinkedIn would be the easiest way to get in touch with either George or I. We're both on LinkedIn. Leave us a message there and we'll take you into our private uh, email accounts. And we'd be happy to talk to anybody, whether it's somebody aspiring to get into manufacturing in Connecticut or somebody that uh, wants information on something we're doing. As George pointed out, we're very big in the international market. We have been for 20 some odd years. You know, you want some information about how we do that and how we manage it. Or if you want to offer some advice, please, we'd be happy to hear from you. Yeah, the one thing that Bill and I both love is talking about what we do and talking about our company. So, you know, we'd be more than happy um, if you want to reach out and contact us. You know, please do. We encourage it. There you go. You heard it here first. Check out George Houston and Bill Mahoney on LinkedIn if you want to continue the conversation. And don't forget, they're likely to be up at 3 a.m. So if you do suffer from (laughs) insomnia, uh, feel free to drop a message on LinkedIn at 3 a.m. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure today. Thank you so much for your time and sharing a little bit about your company with Meet the Manufacturers. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Claire. It's been a pleasure for us as well. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Meet the Manufacturers, brought to you by Manufacture CT. If you would like to find out more about Manufacture CT, or you would like to join the organization, visit the website, manufacturect.org. This podcast is sponsored by Cone Resnick, advisory, assurance, tax. Visit their website, coneresnick.com. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode and want to find out more about the vibrant and thriving manufacturing community in Connecticut, subscribe to and share this podcast today. Meet the Manufacturers is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. This podcast was created and produced by Red Rock Branding, redrockbranding.com.